call to order this February 26, 2024, City Council Workshop. Roll call. Mayor DePue. Present. Councilwoman Gillis. Here. Councilwoman Bennington. Here. Councilman Powers is excused. Councilwoman Dalbo. Here. City Manager Irby. Here. City Attorney Wolf. Here. City Clerk Blotnick present. Okay, so before we start the meeting, I'd like to, uh, to just put out there that the New Smyrna Beach officials invited us on Thursday to uh, the State of the City so before this uh, workshop was scheduled. So with the blessing of the council, uh, I would like to table item C, uh, Police Department Staffing Study, to be uh, later workshop. And um, the reason I put council goals and adjustments for the year is, uh, per the city charter, the mayor is the only one who can call uh, workshops. So moving forward, uh, really, the mayor is the only one who should approve the agenda. Uh, I spoke of before about how important I believe that this is, so I just wanted to put it out on the agenda. So at the very next workshop, that's hopefully what we're workshopping, so you guys can start to get your ideas for that. So um, I'd like to table those two items. The item. council goes and objectives in the police staffing study. Yes, ma'am. Item C and E. Uh, Mr. Mayor. Yes. We have the consultants here for the police staffing. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, like I said, moving forward, um, I would like to approve the agenda ahead of time. Okay. So we can't we can't table item C, but we can table uh, item E. Right. Okay. So. Item 2A, presentations and discussions. Item 2A, department updates. The first one is from the finance department, Ms. Bridget. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Bridget Bassier, finance director with the City of Edgewater. Um, I will be extremely mindful of your time here because I know you all are busy and have a lot on this agenda. Um, I did want to share briefly. <clears throat> so um, finance department is part of that quarterly report that everybody receives um, on a quarterly basis. We have, I'm sure, super exciting for this, those of us that are government finance geeks. Um, for those of you that are not as excited about it, um, we do have financial information highlights um, summarized at the beginning of the report. Towards the end of the report, you'll find all sorts of exciting um, investment updates for the city of Edgewater's cash investments. Um, and we also, somewhere within the report, provide you with a whole lot of detail and statistics of what's going on in the world of finance, um, IT, purchasing, payroll, accounts payable, accounts receivable, accounting budget, all those exciting areas. So. I always say, you know, feel free to review this. If you have any questions, you know, Glenn can answer some of the questions. If he's not aware, feel free to reach out. I'm available. Um, everyone has my extension. So don't hesitate to reach out with questions, concerns, anything that I can help with. Otherwise, I'll keep it very brief and give you a couple of highlights. So this past um, first quarter of the fiscal year 2024, uh, information technology has been working with um, Office 365 migration. Uh, we're hoping to get that off and running in the next couple of weeks. Uh, cybersecurity measures has been a hot topic for information technology. Um, in the accounting realm, we've had ongoing FEMA reporting 
for not only this most recent Ian, but we are in the process of finally closing out Irma and Matthew from 2016 and 17. So real exciting there. Um, utility billing and the public information officer worked together to get the utility bill email reminder up and running. So again, I think that's been a very useful resource for some of the citizens that need that extra reminder once a month on, hey, pay your bill. Um, we've been working with the auditors very closely. Obviously, fiscal year 23 wraps up September 30th, so closing out the year end, working with the auditors on financials. We should be before you at the April meeting with the council um, audit report. Lots of quarterly annual reports. Nothing so exciting, I think, for the group. So again, feel free to reach out with any questions as you're going through the quarterly report. If there's anything I can assist with, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Any questions? Okay, our Park and Recreation and Economic Development Coordinator, Mrs. Bergeron. Hello, good afternoon. I'm gonna be really quick because I know everyone's got time on their mind. I'm just gonna hit some of the highlights of some of the projects that we're working on right now. Currently underway is the YMCA, the HGMP grant, which is the grant that we received to replace the roof and install new windows and doors that can handle 150 mile an hour winds from hurricanes. We expect that completion date to be April 15th. The cur currently the roof huggers are in. The contractor is waiting for the roof panels to arrive and they're installing all the doors and windows as we speak. The Veterans Park Green Infrastructure Grant, which is an EPA grant, the design is complete. Uh, we are currently back and forth with the Florida Environmental Protection Agency. Um, they're requesting an inf additional information for the permit, so we're working on that with our consultant. The Hawks Park Pickleball Project, February 16th, we received favorable points from the ECHO Grant Advisory Board to move the project for the County Council approval, which is March 19th. We rated second. We were only just a couple tenths of a point from uh, the first rated project, which was up in Norman Beach. We have hired a new events coordinator. You may have met her on Saturday, Amy Bubenheim. She's really wonderful. She has a lot of ideas on how to grow city events and partnerships. Some of our upcoming events are this Saturday, March 2nd, is the Princess Ball. We're doing our Mayor's Fitness Challenge kickoff on March 14th. We have the Easter extravaganza March 23rd, and the Arbor Day slash Earth Day slash unveiling of the Butterfly Garden is April 27th. The Animal Shelter Expansion Project, we are so close. We are waiting on quotes for the gates and the fencing, and of course it's over $5,000 threshold, so we're having to find a couple more vendors to get additional quotes from. Still working on Hurricane Ian repairs, Menard May Park Fishing Pier, uh, the next meeting, you'll see a proposal for engineering that's required from FEMA. We'll also stop park the parking lot and driveway asphalt. Jeff Thurman from Environmental Services and I are working on uh, that, either for a formal bid solicitation project or to be able to piggyback um, on something for that. Hawks Park, we still have the bleacher covers and the amphitheater cover. We actually have the new cover in hand. We're just waiting on the vendor to assist us in installing it. The YMCA is in the middle of their campaign, so um, give to the YMCA. They, um, with that, those dollars, they 
provide a lot of services to our community and um, scholarships for kids to attend camp and sports programs and swim lessons and so forth. The safety net barrier at Whistle Stop Park, we've only been working on it for two and a half years. That's installed and completed. It looks great. Um, currently working on the State of the City PowerPoint presentation and hope to have that finalized and to the city manager by Friday. Under the Economic Development CRA, currently working on two applicate, well actually three applications uh, with two property owners. One is the newly proposed Lily Rose Cafe here on US1 and the other one is all about Flores Plus, the new owners there. The CRA annual reporting, that's due March 31st by Florida statute, so I'll be working on putting that together. You'll see that in your April 1st CRA board meeting. Also working on a job fair, career fair, with Southeast Solution Manufacturing and Technology Coalition. The date for that is April 10th. And just this past week, talked to a couple different de developers that are looking at the 20 acres in front of Coral Trace. And um, another gentleman's looking at the property there south of the old TD Bank, that piece of property there. And we are in the midst of our vision planning, the second survey. As we all know, the deadline is March 1st. As of February 12th, we had 552 online responses, 214 physical surveys. That was dated February 7th. I still need to, I get them every day in my mailbox, so I need to scan them and send them in. So that's already 431 responses more than the first survey. So it's going along strong. That's all I have. If anybody has any questions. Any questions? I, I have a question. Um, like the... Yippee, whatever we had yet, uh, Saturday, the dog thing. Petapusa. Uh, Petapusa, thank you. <laughs> we ran out of parking spots. Is there any way when we have events there that we get this, the, the, to open the parking by the school so that they can park in that? Because we had a lot of problems with parking. Yeah, that's not a problem. I thought that Amy had a key on her keychain from the previous... Uh, person, but we didn't have one, and I realized at the very end, after the event, that David Soltz has a key on his keychain. <laughs> um, but I want, I'll make sure that um, our agreement is still good with them, or if they need a, um, a parking agreement or something that I bring to council, I'll make that kind of a more okay. formal arrangement. All right. All right. Thank you. Sam, I just have a question on the Hawks Park Pickleball. So we're, we're second. Does that mean that we may not get the grant because of someone else, or we will also get it? No. After the, um, all of the projects were graded, the advisory board went through their financial standing, and they have $15 million sitting in their ECHO grant fund. So there's plenty of money uh, to fund all the projects that came through, um, but they grade them on a lot of items, technical um, completeness of your package to make sure that you have the full designed plans, the feasibility study, the business plan, the marketing plans, why we waited two years before we submitted another grant. The first grant that we submitted two and a half years ago was denied at the staff level because it wasn't complete. So this year when we put it forth, we made sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed. And you have to get 80% um, as your grade in order to go forward to be um, considered for funding to the county council. Excellent so we had an 89 point, I can't remember, but yeah, it was really close to 90. Yeah. I think there was over, if I remember correctly, almost 20 projects that applied as well. So I wanted to 
Thank you for that update. It was wonderful, very informative. Seeing no further questions. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. You got to go through Jeffrey. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm jumping ahead, aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> way ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> Seeing no further question, our fire chief, Mr. Laracy, also over code enforcement in our animal division. Perfect. Okay. First thing I want to say, I'm now a a city resident again after two years of building a house. And it was not the building department's fault. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So I'll just go over the uh, quarterly report from, and this is going to be the period of October through December. Uh, we had some promotions. Lieutenant Barlow was promoted to captain. He's, uh, he's His primary duties is training and safety officer. So that's been a huge help for us. Uh, driver engineer Thompson was promoted to lieutenant. Firefighter Freshhour was promoted to driver engineer, and Firefighter Brown and Firefighter Kohler were uh, both passed their paramedic exam. And we hired a new firefighter, uh, Mike Garriado, and we have one vacancy right now in the department, and he is in the hiring process right now. So hopefully Great. he starts very soon. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, let's see, uh, the fire department participated in the Pearl Harbor Remembrance at Hawks Park. We participated in the New Smyrna, the Edgewater, Oak Hill Parade training, significant trainings that we had as a, as a department-wide. Uh, the all-aboard storage has a new has an uh, elevator that we did some, conduct some training with it. Uh, conducted a hazmat drill in New Smyrna Beach. Uh, Engine 57 and, and Medic 57 participated in a lock training um, scenario at Tiger Bay in Daytona. Edgewater Fire Rescue also participated in the active shooter training in Daytona and International uh, Speedway. We had an event with the Boy Scouts where we uh, had Air One fly in to the fire station and we were able to show them, the, the boys, the uh, fire trucks and the fire station. That's great. Um, we also purchased a new mannequin for our department for medical training. In this time frame, October to December of 2023, we ran 1,800 calls, 1,823 calls. Uh, our fire inspector conducted 132 inspections. Animal control responded to 271 requests for service. Code enforcement, code enforcement resolved uh, 471 code cases. And they are working at this time frame, they were working 532 cases. And that's all I have. Wow. Thank you. Any questions? No. I don't. Thank you, Jeff. That was a great update. We appreciate it. Development service, Mr. Ryan Solstice. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Uh, so, in the quarterly report, you can see that we had a lot of um, activity at the end of the year. It's kind of a mad dash to the finish of the end of 2023. We had nine variances, um, well, 10 total variances. One was a non-residential uh, Edgewater Preserve Phase Two preliminary plat was approved. Smyrna Creek Preserve preliminary plat was approved. And then Oakleaf Preserve Phase Four. Uh, we also had the, we initiated the Stormwater changes, and I'm happy to report that the state and Volusia County have gotten back to me um, with no comments, so we're clear to move that forward to a second reading at the next council meeting to update the 
plan development code and the comprehensive plan to codify those um, hundred year storm events um, because those were a large scale amendment. Um, the department finished the year very strong. We had 89 more permits than the year prior, so 5,359. Um, the number of um, Certificates of occupancy increased substantially from 2022, uh, from 206 to 333 um, homes, which was about a 38% increase. And then, um, as noted a couple times, is that we had about 109 um, for single-family duplex and triplex, $109 million investment in the community, and an almost an additional $4 million in commercial um, investment in the community last year. Uh, as far as I've updated the entitlement sheet, so you'll see that updated, um, which was provided in the last quarterly report. I went digging around and I found a few more um, PUDs that I had not had on the list prior. So right now we have um, 11,681 units entitled within the city. Um, and so that's a little bit different than what you had last time. What was added there to that was Edgewater Lakes, um, Lakeview Estates, and then Worthington Creek. Uh, and that's about it. When when you mentioned about the variances, how many variances did you say you had so far? So, and we had, just in the last three months of the year of 2023, we had 10 variances. And they've all been approved? Uh, correct, correct. How many approved. did we have last year? I think in, in total last year, we had something around the nature of around 30-ish variances. I thought you said 40 before. Well, I'd have to were double check. The, okay, yeah. between 30 and 40 variances. Correct, yeah, it's somewhere in that range. That's way out of line. I got a real problem with that, people. <laughs> Variants are supposed to meet special steps. Isn't there, is there still five items? Correct, yeah, meet? there's six criteria that six criteria. should be met in order for the board to come to their decision. Um, those I've recommended denial on every single variance because the way the land development code is written is that you have to meet all six. It's not just one or several. We have to meet all six. And that's a very hard threshold. So yes, variances are typically for very special circumstances. Um, the board has. <clears throat> As, okay. Well. I think that's way out of line for, for to have that many variances in the city, and I'm not happy with the planning board. I haven't been happy with them for a while, and I think the council as a whole, we need to do something about that. Now, what we're going to do, we all need to decide. But I, I I don't see that a planning board giving 40 variances when already they've given 10 variances, and it's only been two months, and. Um, I, I really have a problem with that. So I suggest that we discuss what we're going to do. Not, maybe not at this because of the time sure. limitations, but I, I would like that put on an agenda in the future, sure. close to future, so that we can really look at it. Sure, we can workshop that in the future, and I'm sure that the manager could come up with a few solutions in the meantime and a few uh, ideas because that is quite a few variances. But I can give one solution. Yeah, sure. I can give one solution. But the city, the council starts taking over variances. I think a lot of the update of some of the codes were updated, though. I think a lot of the variances wouldn't be needed. Oh, uh, 
this, yes, they would. Yes, they would. I'm sorry. The, the variances are very important, and we shouldn't. If we're going to be issuing, think the codes were updated to like if we're having certain variances on things that are coming back, it's like let's say everybody's getting a variance for a pool. Like if well, nine out of ten of those are for pools, should we re look at reassessing what our codes are? For you do have a point. When we when um, it's been a year now, when um, I was first elected, Mr. Powers and I discussed. Um, I believe workshopping or workshop um, to discuss if our codes did need to be updated because several of them are from the 40s and or 50s and 60s. So I believe that there is a point there that we should workshop that in the future. Good, good point. Not it may not be connected to the variance. It may be, but that that's something that we can figure out through that workshop. Well, if I'm going to interject here, I think Ryan is going through and updating things as he comes through. He can only do so much. But I know he's updated several things. Um, yeah, I think as once the um, once I have a better picture of what the constituents want with the visioning session, then I'll really start honing in on making those changes. I didn't want to start aggressively making changes without having that sort of direction. And, and I don't even I know we're discussing building codes, but I just mean codes in general that that need to be updated. Just regular house codes around. Fortishes, Edgewater, that like parking are outdated, and correct. And just little things ramps. like that that make a difference that could potentially or may not lead yeah. to a variance. I need to I be can, updated. Almost every municipality, I think, does it every 10 years. I'm not saying we don't, but I think it's something that we should explore. I can tabulate for you what everyone applied for in the last year for variances, just so you have an idea if there is a pattern. That would, be, that would be great, yeah, because I know we're given variances now for, for pools in the front yard, and I don't know how that qualifies for a variance. Um, I don't I'll, know if we actually had one in the front yard this last year while I was here. Uh, I know one has been granted in the past. It, it, essentially, besides the zoning district itself, um, like a use, you can apply for a variance against almost anything in the code besides like a, a use like you can't have in a residential you can't have an industrial warehouse right but you can ask for side setbacks front setbacks building coverage height well I, I i have to agree with charlotte too when the if codes are updated maybe the variance qualifications are won't be six anymore maybe there'll be four but we're still going to have variances no matter you can't do away with development without having requests for variance there's always somebody that wants something a little different, you know. And I, I think if we're going to do this, I think when we do this, we need the workshop with Ryan and just um, the planning and everything. I agree fully. Not, not the rest of it. I think I would like to have a workshop with just Ryan to go over what we perceive as things and, and him, too. And like, he's got some good ideas. Like I said, I can't remember fully, but I think that that was one of the things that Councilmember Powers stated in the past as well. Yeah. Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> Are there any other comments? Great update. Thank you. Okay. Moving forward. Our wonderful police chief, Mr. Joe. Good afternoon, Mayor. Good afternoon, Mayor and Council. Um, I'll run you through the highlights of our quarter four. Uh, we hired three new officers, uh, Officer Sahid Ali, Officer Molly Ballou, and Officer Vinny Castellano. 
What's unique about those three hires is they were all active with other law enforcement law enforcement agencies, um, and two of them took uh, pay cuts to come work for BPD. So that speaks volumes for the environment we created here in the city. Um, with those three new hires, we're at allocated staffing, which we've consistently been able to maintain. Um, and you're going to hear later from our presenters for the staffing study how challenging the environment really is to remain full staffed. So that's a, quite the accomplishment. We also created, uh, we did some restructuring and created a special service division. This basically brings all our specialty units uh, in the agency under one umbrella. So that's motors, canine, marine, uh, and then we created a target impact unit. So basically the impact unit is a unit comprised of two officers and one canine officer. And they're there to uh, combat quality of life issues. So whatever the issue is going on in Edgewater, whether it's transients or traffic or narcotics, they're specifically tasked with solving that, that issue. So that's a good addition to our team. Uh, aside from that, we participated in two special events, uh, the Trunk or Treat, and uh, we helped with a toy giveaway with the New Smyrna Beach High School Criminal Justice Program. Uh, and I'm also proud to say that we selected the 2023 Officer of the Year. Many of you know him, K-9 Officer Sammy Epitropoulos. Um, he is the department's first uh, true canine instructor, and we hosted our first uh, canine school, which is a very, uh, very big feat. Uh, not a lot of agencies have that capability. And other than that, we only had one uh, critical incident, which was the homicide on, on October 6th on the 1500 block of Juniper. I can say that approximately 500 man hours went, went into that investigation. Uh, and we were able to have both offenders in custody uh, within 24 hours. So our officers did a great job during that investigation. And that pretty much wraps up our quarter highlights. But if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. I have a question. My microphone you didn't bring cooperates. It I think it should be. Got it. Your school. I'm sorry? Citizens assisting police. I've been trying to get people. I mean, citizen. What is it? The, I mean, thank you. I don't know. I've been trying to get people to go, and everybody I mention it says, oh, that's a really good idea, but nobody's saying they want to go. Are the Citizens Academy? Yeah, we're, we're trying to, to advertise. It's tough. It's volunteer. It, it's a commitment of seven weeks. Yeah. But uh, we've had a few sign up for our, our next academy so far. So we're going to keep pushing out there. It's, it's a great program. Yeah, I'm that's pushing everybody I talk to. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Wonderful. Any questions? What is the date of the Citizens Police Academy? Would you happen to know? Ooh, off the top of my head here, in your calendar. Our Facebook page has it for sure. Okay, great. <laughs> is it on the, do we have your website? Do we have a website, I assume? Or just sign up uh, in person at a police station? So uh, on, on the Facebook page, it directs you to uh, email uh, sgeiger at cityofedgewater.org, Sarah Geiger, which coordinates the program. Okay. But the dates are... March 21st through April 27th. Wonderful. And then also, uh, we have our awards banquet, um, which I believe you are all invited to. You should be invited to. And that banquet is April 12th at 6 p.m. And that's a, the Live Oak Cultural Center on New Smyrna Beach. So I hope you all can make it. Great.
Okay. Seeing no further questions, environmental services, Mr. Coslow. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, I'm just going to do a brief highlight on some of the capital projects we have going on. The public works facility, the solicitation for the construction manager on that is on the street right now, as we say, with uh, packages opening on March 13th. The uh, Sun Trail project that was to go from basically Whistle Stop Park to Rotary Park, um, because of the recent increases in uh, you know inflation-based construction costs, it's looking like that the funding on that isn't going to increase commiserate with the increase in, in the construction costs. So it's likely that that's going to be broken into phases at 442. I am still working with the railroad. I, it is a high priority of mine to make sure that we get that sidewalk crossing on the north side of uh, Roberts Road, you know, so that we can install a sidewalk from Whistle Stop over to India where it stops there on the north side. So no matter what happens with the funding for the trail, that's something that I'm, you know, really pushing hard for. The interlocal agreement that we have for utilities with Volusia County, they have a, a consecutive system to Edgewater where we supply them uh, potable water on a wholesale basis. They take a portion of our sanitary sewer and treat it at their treatment plant down in Oak Hill. That interlocal agreement was originally drafted and went into effect in 1999. 25 years later, we've grown. It's in need of updating. Uh, working with staff, we sent a uh, new version of the interlocal agreement to them for review in January, um, waiting on response, but this has been a long time coming, so it's, it's going to move slowly through both governments. Um, on the utility side of things, the two-inch galvanized replacement uh, project that we had going on on the northern end of town, all the pipes are in. City staff are working to switch over those connections from the old galvanized pipes to the new PVC pipes. Uh, we have lift station 11 that was at our recent council meeting for award. That came in as everything construction-wise these days, significantly over budget. We were able to reallocate some money that we had budgeted for sewer lining in order to, um, in order to fund for that cost increase. Um, Actually, I mentioned that. I think that's coming on the upcoming agenda, the one that I just finished typing up that you haven't seen yet, probably. Park Avenue Booster Pump Station. This is a $3 million project to build a new pump station here on uh, West Park Avenue. Um, that is the site of a previous city water plant. That water plant was built in the 70s. The pump room of it has been in operation ever since and is in dire need of replacement. Uh, there has been a grant that came available in the wake of Hurricane Ian uh, for which we are, I'll say, in the top tier for receiving 100% uh, principal forgiveness on an SRF loan, basically a grant to construct this, which is, that's very good news. Haven't gotten the official word from DEP on that, but we're ranked very high on it. Uh, Park Avenue water main relocation. This is here at Park Avenue in US-1. DOT is working on a project to install mast arms instead of the span wire traffic signals. And as a result, we have to move our water main out of that intersection. Um, just last week or the week before, they did the directional drill under US-1 right there from Wilkinson to um, Western Avenue um, without incident. So nothing fell into the ground, nothing exploded. That's what you always want on those big directional drills. 
the water meter replacement program, that's moving right along. Um, we're having, we're just getting some more transmitters coming out of the, you know, as you're well aware of the supply chain limitations that have impacted that. Um, we are having people come in on the weekends and whatnot and stay after hours in order to replace meters to keep that moving forward. And a project that you'll see and hear more about in the next coming weeks and months, the Environmental Protection Agency is requiring all utilities nationwide to do what they're calling a lead service line inventory. That's to look at every water service to every uh, dwelling that was built before 1989 1989 is when the lead ban went into effect nationwide. Anything that's older than that, um, we need to inventory to see if there is any lead pipe anywhere in our system. We have no records of any lead pipe. We have, you know, consistently said from the date when we first constructed a water system, lead was already out of favor, but they're requiring every utility to do an, uh, an inventory of it. Uh, so that's going to be a major effort of our department in the next months ahead. Um, let's see here. On the public works side of things, uh, the two side loader refuse trucks that we purchased at the beginning of last fiscal year, uh, last we heard we're expecting to get it towards the end of summer this year. Um, also on the agenda coming up is the purchase of another uh, refuse truck to replace our last two of the older, smaller, the 18-yard trucks. This is a 30-yard truck to replace that. Uh, resurfacing, as you know, in the last fiscal year, we had funds to pave Willow Oak from 36th Street up to the boulevard. In the current fiscal year, um, we will be paving Willow Oak from the boulevard up to 12th Street. That's about a mile. Uh, we also have funds in dirt road reduction. The contractor asphalt paving systems on site right now in about the 1500 block of Juniper is where they've mobilized to work on those uh, dirt roads right around in there. They'll also be moving to a couple other parts in town, including the entrance to Veterans Park and the southern end of Francis Drive. A um, couple other streets off of Hart Avenue, Snyder and Otter are also going to be part of the dirt road reduction program. Um, speaking of Hard Avenue, the Hard Avenue stormwater project wrapped up at the within the quarter that this quarterly report was written around. <clears throat> and I know we were working on getting the last reimbursements from the state on that. All right, so we're we're just about done buttoned up with that one. Uh, the G2 G11 canal improvements. The engineer was here at the last council meeting to give us an update on that. Um, the uh, Florida Shores Canal Armoring Project. As has been a theme for a lot of this, construction costs have increased significantly from when we had begun envisioning this. The current cost estimate for the three segments that we have under design is 4.2 million with the cost overruns from, well, overruns, with the, the already increased levels when we awarded the Hart Avenue project took out the reserves that we had allocated to the Florida Shores armoring. So we need to build that back up uh, before we can build them. We do have basically ready to go plans when we have the funding available. Um, the, what I'm calling the Duck Lake Outfall Project, that's the one there at 16th and Lime, that area. 
Uh, we're working on trying to get a strategy which will be permitted by St. John's River Water Management District. We're working closely with the engineer on that, looking at a couple of different approaches to make sure that we protect the Gaslight Square neighborhood of Regent and Bond. Those are some of the lowest homes in that area. Uh, that concludes all the projects. I'd be glad to answer any questions. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I just have a question. So the $4.2 million, that was um, for the canal repair that, that we had uh, presented to us six or seven months ago at a council meeting? Yes. It's, it's been a few years in the making, but yes. And, and so when, yeah, we have to wait until we have funding available, but once the funding is available, we're ready to go? We have it broken into three different parts. One of them is more or less a repair down here at Riverside in 442. So that, that really could go at any time. It's within a level that you know we can budget around. Um, the next segment would be Traveler's Umbrella Canal from 442 to where it turns at the head of the 18th Street Canal. That's coming in at right about a million dollars cost estimate. Um, and the section of the Unity Canal from 22nd over to 27th um, that's coming at 3.1 million. Those are all considerably higher from when we had begun budgeting for this after, um, I think it was, we did a workshop in 2019 where we talked about, you know, how we could do armoring of the canals and really good long-term stabilization of them. Um, we've been budgeting for doing that project ever since then. But with the increase in cost, specifically the Hart Avenue project, really ate up a lot of what we had been saving towards that. We're still continuing to budget year by year towards that. But the direction given in that workshop was go ahead, work on that project, but don't cause a great impact to the rates as a result. So we don't want to you know, budget for one big number and blow the, the rate out of the water. And what's currently in that budget? Uh, 300000 which is what we had been funding towards that year by year up until now. There's no grant opportunities for this? This is considered more of a repair or an operation of maintenance. We look for grant opportunities for this kind of thing. We haven't found them yet. Uh, we can work with the grant manager to see if there's you know any out there, but we haven't seen one yet that would cover this. So how many years on a finance level do you expect that it's going to take, Mr. Manager? Do you have that answer? Or so we have no options at this point. We have to just sit back and wait, possibly for a grant. Um, I mean, we do have a rate study coming up. We look at our rates every year. I would be, unless I get direction from council, I would be reluctant to put that much money into the next fiscal year of a capital project. But we can look among the various projects that we have in there. And we can discuss prioritization of you know what we have and what we need. We do have a that surplus budget currently. Okay, that would be perfect. As I think it's very important, um, and I'd hate to to pass up this uh, for repairs and then something happen. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I have something to say. Yes, ma'am. Your crews are so good. You know, we had that dip in our our street. Well, you. All the neighbors wanted it. Well, it's in. Now they want it back because it slowed the traffic coming from the handy way to the stop sign. They said, tell Randy we want that back. We want that dip. We didn't realize how important it was to traffic. <laughs> Just thought I'd lighten up a little bit. Well, thank bit. you. Maybe a speed bump is in order. <laughs>
We need to talk about that at a later date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do need them. <laughs> okay, no further questions. Miss Bonnie. Um, thank City you. Clerk. Um, my stuff's not exciting, as exciting as everybody else's, but um, the last quarter of 2023, October through December, my office, we processed 145 liens and satisfactions, um, 14 claims, which those are somebody has a sewer backup or we did some type of damage to someone's property. Um, also, any accidents that any of our vehicles get into, I pro we process all of those. Um, we recorded and distributed 190 documents from all the different departments. We processed 112 public records requests. And we also um, were continuing and as always reviewing documents scanned by other departments and then um, overseeing the monthly destruction of documents that have met their retention. We, during that time frame, we destroyed 21 boxes, which each box is like 1.5 cubic feet. Um, and processed um, 57 false alarms and registered 10 new alarm systems. And then we also, all of the agreements, ordinances, resolutions that go before council, we processed all of those um, about highlights. Um, then there's still a bunch of other miscellaneous, whatever happens each day. That's all. Thank you. Any questions? Okay. <coughs> Item B, Code Enforcement Process and Laws, Chief Laracy. Okay, Mayor and Council, I have an opportunity to brag about code enforcement, so here's my opportunity. So uh, we're just going to talk about code enforcement, high level. Uh, code enforcement, um, we enforce city ordinances. We get our authority from Florida Statute 162. Here are some examples of uh, typical cases that we handle by each department, so we work with, you know, most of the departments here in the city a lot. Um, some of these that may not look familiar to a lot of people is like FPNL, uh, Bell South, and Cable. We work to find where utilities companies will put in multiple poles and they'll never take the old one out. So we're constantly on the phone with those folks to try to convince them to remove some of those unnecessary poles. The biggest one we're having right now is under the building department is a lot of your illegal conversions. A lot of folks are uh, putting family members in uh, either sheds in the backyard or turning their garage into a living space, and that can be dangerous, especially if your garage doesn't have a window or a door to go out of. So they turn it into a bedroom, and we pull up there, and it's on fire. We do not expect somebody to be in the garage. We go into the, the main dwelling of a house looking, searching for possible victims. We would never think of a victim being in the garage. Um, I took over code enforcement. In 2009, that was when the economy was really hurting the city of Edgewater. We had three code enforcement officers at that time in 2009. We eliminated two of the three positions. And for many years, uh, we, we have worked with less than what we had in 2009 when I first took over. 
And 2023 was the first time we got back up to our levels from the 2009 staffing. So you can imagine the growth that we've seen in our city. We're, you know, we, we are staffed at the point of we're maxing the guys out. So um, the guys are working very hard. Um, and that was May 2023 is when we went to the third position to get us back to the 2009 levels. As you can see, the call volumes, the cases that we've had uh, last year, we almost hit the 2,000. If I would have known, I wouldn't have cut my grass and we would hit the 2,000 mark. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out next time. Uh, legal authority, code enforcement only has the ability to write civil citations, place liens on properties, foreclose if the property is not homesteaded. There's some questions to that. Um, so that's not always the rule. But for the most part, if it's homesteaded, we're not going to be foreclosing on it. Uh, abate the property so long as the property owner or occupant allows access. We have a lot of times here where we uh, want to go on the property and mow it or remove items, trash from the yard, and the occupant a tenant, property owner, um, squatters, they kick us off the property. So, uh, code enforcement officers do not have the ability to physically force someone to comply. We don't put people in jail for not cutting their grass. Um, we work with a lot of folks in the city of Edgewater that are willing to correct the violations when we speak to them. However, if you're dealing with someone who um, is not of the sound mind and we tell them you're going to get a citation and you're going to get daily fines, that doesn't affect them at all. Um, foreclose on homesteaded properties. We do not have the ability to foreclose on uh, homesteaded properties. Uh, we cannot investigate anonymous complaints, which is a huge issue that we have in our department. And I've got some slides, some examples of that. We ha you cannot remain anonymous when you, when you want to report a violation. That is state law. Um, only able to investigate complaints in a manner that does not violate someone's constitutional rights. I cannot walk in somebody's backyard. Um, so I cannot walk into uh, the neighbor's backyard and look through their slats of their fence to look for violations. So we cannot do that. So we can be told there's something going on in somebody's backyard. If it's behind a fence and there's no way I can see it from a legal location, we can't do anything about it. We went to a magistrate form of uh, enforcement. We used to have a, uh, uh, a code enforcement board, but in 2014, we went to the special magistrate. Um, it's a, it's a, an attorney that hears the, uh, the city side, code enforcement officer side, and then they'll hear the uh, violator side. And um, that's, that, that special magistrate in 2014 really helped us speed up the process in a lot of ways. Um, special magistrate process, this is just an outline of how long it takes us typically to go through a code enforcement process. So we receive a complaint, we go and investigate the complaint, and in this example, we put day one, March 1st. We go back out after 10 days to reinvestigate it. If the violation has not been corrected, then we have to write an issue, a notice of violation. Then we, then we give them typically 10 days we have to give them reasonable time to correct. If the violation still isn't corrected, then we schedule them for a hearing before the special magistrate. Uh, the magistrates are held on the second Thursday of the following month. And after they pre we present our case in front of the magistrate, then he also has to, by law, provide them more time to correct. 
So these folks get a lot of time to correct. The city of Edgewater, there's uh, proactive and reactive enforcement. This, the example of proactive enforcement is uh, uh, act actively patrolling the city streets. Here's a software program, a, a GIS program that's uh, not available to the public, but it's we're used in-house. Our GIS department, Frank, created this for us. And the green and red indicates streets that we've been that we have gone through and checked, and then the red uh, indicates where we need to go. And this map resets every six months. So we try to go down every street at least every six months. Uh, we also initiate code cases based on first-hand knowledge of the violation when we're driving by. Uh, we do conduct daily swipes, uh, sign sweeps, to remove signs uh, not permitted in the right-of-way. So those are your uh, garage sale signs, uh, that kind of stuff that's placed in the right-of-way. Reactive, we have, uh, that's, that's when somebody actually reports a violation. They could do that in person at the code enforcement office. They can call us. They can email us, or they can use the easy, uh, the Track Easy program that the city has for our residents. Limitations with the Track Easy: incomplete information. Uh, we need the name and address of the complainant in, in order for us to take action, or a code enforcement officer to take investigative action. Um, sometimes the information is incomplete or inaccurate, and where the violation even exists. Voicemails are the same way. If somebody leaves us a voicemail after hours, they will not tell us any information. They want to remain anonymous, and we cannot act on those. And we have a lot of these. Here's an example. This was from the 20th, the 25th. So that was, what, yesterday? Mm -hmm. This is an example of somebody. They gave us a fake phone number. They told us a lot of things that are important here. We would like to address these violations. But can anybody tell me what the address is? They just put Royal Palm. We have no idea where this is at. So this is an example. We would love to take action, but we can't. We receive a lot of these complaints. Uh, enforcement delays when we're dealing with um, renters. Uh, a lot of the times the, uh, there's a delay in the property owner being notified. For example, we'll issue a courtesy notice to the violator. That tenant may not take, it, uh, take action. We will then um, send the notices of violations through the mail, certified, we post the property. However, the, a lot of these property owners that rent their houses out, they, they don't live in the state, they live out of state, and by the time they get the notice of violation, it could be 10 days, 15 days, and then by the time they get involved, it's, it's been 15 days, um, 20 days sometimes. Um, they can. We also find with tenants, sometimes they can hinder the... Uh, the compliance by, by the property owner, whereas they will not let the property owner come on the property. They won't, they won't, they're fighting, and then we get in the middle of it. So then our enforcement is against the property owner. They show us that they're trying to evict someone. We kind of we we delay the code enforcement process because there's no sense of putting daily fines on a landowner or a property owner who is actively trying to evict someone. Uh, and then squatters. So a lot of times you have squatters that have no desire to pay any fines. And we have squatters where people are just, they see a home that appears to be vacant and they'll break in and they'll, that's where they'll live. We also have squatters in the sense of uh, people that stop paying their mortgage and the banks are trying to get them out. Those are almost squatters too. They have no interest 
uh, of cleaning up their yard and their debris. And that's a lot of the complaints that you folks will hear. Um, here's an example. This is that India Palm, 2215, 2217 India Palm. It's a one owner. This duplex property was owned by one individual who passed away sometime around 2019. We had multiple cases on the lot with no owner, representative, or contact. Squatters could not be removed by code enforcement only through the eviction by the property owner or guardianship. In this case, it went many years without a family member, there is no family member, to step up to this house to take ownership. Uh, abatement was not possible to, do, to the squatters and the transients refusing us access to the property. We can't, we can't do anything about it. We cannot go on the property. They still have their rights. So. As far as the court is concerned, that property is theirs until they're served. Um, so in 2021, uh, the property was taken to the special magistrate for outdoor storage, and a citation of 150 was assessed, but no daily fines were issued because the property came into compliance. Um, the original probate lawyer uh, assigned to the property in 2021 died, and the property was never reassigned to a new one. So that delayed this process, too. Um, in 2023, the property was issued daily fines of $250 in June through the special magistrate. Um, I believe this property is over $50,000 now. Five, uh, yeah, $50,000. Did um, they owe us some fines? Yes, I think that I should have that in the slide here. Um, the new guardianship, the company who, is, who has guardianship over that property, has gone out there. They've boarded the property up. We are working with them to try to go out there in the next 30 days to remove the debris. Uh, they actually gave us uh, permission to go on the property, and we have been working with them to send them photos so they have an idea of what they're getting themselves into. Um, here are all the code cases. In the very beginning, while the property owner was alive, there was, there was some code cases, but they were all corrected within that 30 days. Uh, we had some parking issues. Again, they were all corrected. It wasn't until 2021 when we had the first case for a $150 fine, and but the violation was corrected, so there was no daily fines. The many, excuse me. How many houses like this do you have come across? Zombie houses. This is what we consider. What we have about them? 10 of them in the city of Edgewater right now. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. As long as they remain, as long as they destroy the backyard, we don't hear about it. So, and a lot of these folks will let us mow the grass. Wow. If you go and knock on the door and ask them politely and say, we just want on the property to mow the grass, they'll let us. But, but taking stuff from them, they do not want us to take anything off the property. We've never been successful doing that. Um, so, we, yeah, at the very end of the slide there, it's $43,000 today. That they owe us from that property? Yes. Yep. And we'll never see it. We'll never see that money. Um, again, that's not real cost because we haven't really put anything into the property because they haven't let us on the property. Um, but you put a lot of time in it. We have put a lot of time. So the two photos on the top are from our code cases, and the two bottom pictures are from today. So we are uh, working with that the new guardianship of the property to try to get them very quickly to remove all the trash. We want them to remove the boards. We want this to look like a normal home so it doesn't attract additional squatters, because that's exactly what's going to happen. It's just going to be a vicious cycle. And these are just some of the photos that we've taken of our recent photos of code cases. 
these are your typical code cases where you have, you know, people storing stuff in their backyard. What, but you can't do anything about the storage in the backyard, can you? If we can see it. This is the example on the upper left-hand side. That's visible from the right-of-way. Oh, okay. Gotcha. The bottom photos are some illegal dumping uh, cases that we were recently involved with. Um, these pictures are the property off of 401 West Park Avenue. That was a, the property owner. Um, we've been working with them for a while. Actually, we with that new team that the PD has created, they're working really close with us and um, to get this resolved. So this should be cleaned up in the next 30 days. And this is just, a, this map is something that's available to the public from our website. And, and what this shows is, this is, it resets every year. So we're in February. So those reddish orange dots are active cases and all your black dots are code cases from last year. So you can see that we're all over the city. There's not, you know, we're not just picking on one area. Those black dots, they're not, they're not code cases that have been settled. They're just... That could not. be a, correct, you're right. That could be a code case where we've done everything we can and there's daily fines. And there's a lot of dots that you don't see they are on top of each other because typically it's the same properties over and over and we have our hot list we know which properties to, to go out and look at especially in the summer do you have any questions but this, the state really ties your hand on a lot of things yeah we we i mean you have that constitutional right thing that always gets in our way um property rights and everything else but well, uh, i understand that yeah. You know. Yeah, we, we try. I mean, we do talk to some of these squatters to try to talk some sense into them. We try to ask them, you know, why the legal process is going on to put their junk in the backyard. But it's, they just don't care. They don't care. And they have a devastating effect when somebody is trying to sell their property in that vicinity. It causes them to lose maybe 10, 15, 20,000 on what they could have made on their house. That's devastating to them. To them. And for us, it affects our property values because... Ultimately, code enforcement wants to protect your property values. That's our goal. Absolutely. Well, you cleared up a bunch of things for me. That's very thorough. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, the big, big attaboy to GIS department with that system, that mapping system where we can now track um, roads that we've gone down, who went down it, when is it scheduled to go back, and that system is really helping us. You know, because we don't have that much downtime, but if we do have some downtime, the guys can go check out a street real quick. They can find out what needs to be done, and we can we can do it real quick. So that's helped us to be a little bit more efficient. So it's a this, big. This, oh, sorry. It was a big help when we hired the supervisor. That has been a huge help for us. Awesome, glad to hear. If anyone's listening to this, typically in Florida Shores, which side of the driveway, just on a typical Florida Shores home, is overflowing parking? So for overflow parking, it is you have to park immediately parallel closest to your property line. Gotcha. So in a typical Florida Shores home, that would be away from your front door, if that makes sense. It does, thank you. Yeah. And a lot of this information is available on our website, diagrams. So if anybody has any questions, even the public, they should call Code Enforcement. And we'll Wonderful. Out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, unfortunately, this time, would you guys be comfortable with um, tabling item uh, D council salary discussion at this time for a further date. That's fine. Okay, thank you. I know you want to get to your. Unfortunately. 
Item C, Police Department Staffing Study. Thank you all for having us here uh, this evening. Uh, we uh, have this presentation sort of set at a normal uh, conference uh, post-police officer standard training or CLE uh, credit workshop for about four hours. So uh, it sounds like some of you guys were saying you wanted to get home earlier. So we'll no, we have a separate event. A little engaged. bit brief, uh, briefer than that. So we've amended it down to about a 30-minute version, and, and I'll try to go quickly where I can so it won't even be that long. But uh, I'm, a, I'm Dr. Mitch Miller. I'm a, a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at UNF, here with my colleague, Dr. Brenda Bose, who's also in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at UNF. She's actually the department chair there. And uh, so this is uh, Brenda, and I'll uh, let you see some... Uh, some bullet points on her while I speak, uh, but uh, she's uh, really involved in the discipline, uh, involved in a lot of uh, applied criminology grant work around the country, uh, especially in partnership with policing. Uh, I'm on the project uh, as well, obviously. And our third member that couldn't be here today is uh, my former student, actually I'm proud of, Dr. Wesley Jennings. Uh, who is currently, uh, as well, uh, uh, various titles, but uh, he's currently the chair of the Criminal Justice Department at Ole Miss. So that's uh, who we are. Uh, so there's probably few things more important in criminal justice than maintaining adequate body of a law enforcement agency. We depend on the police uh, blatantly every day, whether we, we need them or not, and when we need them, it's the first thing that comes to mind. So uh, it's, it's the essence of our criminal justice system. The whole system is based on the notion of a social contract, that we don't do things to other people that we might if, if we take advantage of them as an exchange, do we get the protection of someone else who doesn't do us, and when there are people that don't comply with this fundamental understanding, we turn to law enforcement to make sure that that is indeed the case and that that's what we live under, which is the essence of American democratic ethos. So uh, as Philip K. law enforcement is very much this in terms of thinking that it's the face of the case. When citizens have complex issues uh, in general with one another, what do they turn to? It's, it's law enforcement. Law enforcement tends to be the face really of authority of, of you actually be adequate size of force to attract community services and organizations to assist in prosecuting crime. There has to be basic, uh, uh, th there's a bare minimum that we have to get to, and that's not for everything that police do, but just to respond to the call for services when the citizens need you. 
this happening not having that reality and inadequate leadership or lack of adequate grave longer responsibilities. Well, you know, I, I won't eat up our evening by saying that there isn't an obvious or longer responsibility. And that's critical if we're talking about a more violent crime than that, or, I mean, or domestic violence or rape or something like that. I mean, not, not minutes, but even mere seconds, right, can make a difference. But it's hard to overemphasize the importance It's not only these more obvious, more dramatic things that would be headline catching that, but in everyday sort of routine ways, uh, reality, uh, an overburdened police force causes burnout, causes the stress, the errors, result in litigation in the city if there's too many errors, right? Not due to malintent, just you know, just the burnout, the stress of people. Also, something that the chief said in his brief report earlier that you know it's it's impressive that people want to work here so much that they're willing to take slight pay cuts. But if if uh, over time the, the force gives more staff that positive climate that's harmonious and makes people want to come be here, will go away, right? Because everybody's in a bad mood because they're working here, which is pretty much common sense. So. There's an obvious importance of maintaining I don't mean to interrupt you, but that mic comes out of the holder if you'd like to take it out and hold it. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was facing up here. Yeah, no problem. It's All right. Well, uh, how, is that too loud now? No, that's good. Okay. So anyway, if, if we get too few police, we get in a code red sort of situation. It gets bad. So this is part of the presentation that we do at national conferences that I'll kind of blaze through and not bore you with too, too much. But it just evidences the, the fact that, uh, that uh, staffing is a problem in law enforcement nationwide. It's most pronounced. I'm a former president of the Southern Criminal Justice Association. Brenda's on the board of directors. We can tell you it's most pronounced in the southern region of the, of the country. But uh, there have been sort of overlapping realities that have come together in recent years to make for, you know, that movie, The Perfect Storm, well, a perfect storm of, you know, crisis for law enforcement uh, agency staffing, you know. So, well, you know, COVID prompted a wave of retires, attrition, transfers, uh, changed the nature of policing, didn't impact uh, Edgefield, Edgewater, rather, I'm sorry, as much as uh, we also have Edgefield, South Carolina, uh, Edgewater, uh, as much as some uh, agencies. But uh, during this same during this same time frame, we also saw you know the rise of anti-police sentiment nationwide, the defund the police movement, right? And these things together, as you can see from the statistics on the slide from the American Correctional Association, from the FBI conference, uh, various conferences that we've we've been to and listened to, you know, not me but other talking heads talk about these issues. And we've collected the sites, and you can see that there's just, there's a general short-staffed problem throughout criminal justice generally, but it's, uh, but it's most pointed in law enforcement. So uh, these, are just, these are just newspaper headlines from around the country which evidence exactly what I'm saying, and you can see. So it's, it's in the prisons, it's uh, especially, in law, especially in law enforcement. Uh, so, you know, now uh, we talked about the, the first point, and, and Brenda said, "Well, do we really want to say that? Because if you know, if eighty, if we say that eighty-six percent of people are short-staffed, right, then that might provide the council a reason to say, well, 
we're, everybody's got this problem. Why, why should we be particularly concerned about it? Because the problem is that it, it's like it's an, a bit of an incestuous uh, cannibalistic problem, if you think about it. Because if everybody's short-staffed, everybody's looking to get somebody, and it's easier, it sounds like y'all have had a little bit of success, it's easier to get somebody that's already sworn, right? They can hit the ground running. They just come in, right? So, uh, and it's harder to get somebody new, and we're not only, you know, seeing... Uh, a wave of early retirements, but we're seeing an all-time low in enrollments in sworn academies across all the states, right? So fewer people want to be the police right now, obviously, because of what's going on you know, nationwide. So uh, just more, more headlines, and I'll, I'll just get through these. Uh, and then, and then uh, really, though, intensifying all of these other problems, defund the police, you know, the COVID spike of short staff and whatnot. Now. now we have, you know, essentially a new American crime spree. We all get, you know, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whatever you watch, right? And it's just like, I, I can't believe it because it's like we're, we're sitting in Florida where you can still buy toothpaste, right? And I'm, I don't feel particularly, you know, like at harm walking outside, you know, after dark necessarily. But that's not the case in a lot of places in America anymore, right? It's becoming, you know, very... Uh, very uh, perilous in many respects. And as it becomes more so, that burden is going to shift increasingly to who? Well, law enforcement. Right? That's who we're going to turn to. So I'll blaze through this part as well, but uh, the staffing model that we conducted for you guys, it's, it's completely homegrown, homegrown, at least in terms of being Florida-based. So uh, uh, Chief uh, Rick Staley from uh, Flagler County called Brenda a few years back, three or four now, I guess. We've been doing this a while. And uh, they were trying to, de to decide how many officers they needed because they have a unique situation with the town of Palm Coast, which has no police department. So the sheriff there, it kind of is police chief and sheriff, you know, for the county and the city both. And so they were trying to, you know, work out what the right numbers should be and asked uh, if we would do the, the staffing analysis. And I had never done one. Brenda hadn't. She came and asked me if I would. And I was like, at first, I was like, well, let me look into it. And I said, well, it doesn't seem to be that complicated, and let's, do, let's make this sheriff happy because then he'll partner with us what we do do, which is partner with uh, law enforcement uh, on substance abuse and mental health treatment type of initiatives, and we have done a lot of partnerships with them on that as well since. But back to this, we started with the sheriff, and we did the, what you would do on any study, especially one you're not familiar with as a, as a social scientist, is we did a scientific literature review. And in doing the literature review, I tried to identify the, all of the leading staffing analysis models, everything that had been done, say, in the last, well, since its inception, 50 years, if you will, or so. And uh, the, the most simplistic of the study of the, of, the, of the models, it's not even a model, it's more like a, a fraction or, or something, but it, but it was just this notion of for years, there was this just general reference standard of you need one officer, per 1,000 citizens. Well, that, that's absurd in many respects because on, on both ends of that, you know, equal sign, right? Because not every 1,000 citizens present the same amount of problems or kinds of problems that would compel the same amount of time for, for police services because this all comes down to time, essentially, right? And then on the other hand, not every police officer is equally equipped to, to you know, respond to as many, many citizens. And... Uh, so that, that seemed problematic. And then there's uh, several other models that, are, that have limitations. And, and I won't bore you with, with going through a great criticism of them all. So what we did is we, we uh, 
adhered to in this first study for, for Sheriff Staley, uh, what's called a, a workload-based model, or, and it's a model that's, that previously was referred to as the IACP model. IACP is International Association of Chiefs of Police because that group endorsed or you know blessed this model, but it probably means they helped fund its development as well. So we used that model the first time around because, well, one thing, the, the sheriff and the mayor needed the findings very quickly, like I think it was five or six months, and this is more of like a, a year-long study usually. Uh, so... Uh, we also didn't know a better alternative to, you know, to pivot to. This was considered the preferable model. So we did this, we, we got the sheriff's findings, everyone was happy with that first round and it provided some information useful to the county and their decision making and such. But what we learned most of all is the model was really, really bad. I mean, just to be blunt, it sucked. It was really bad. Like we're scientists, and the first one of the big things just to walk around is measurement precision. And the IACP model, it didn't measure anything. It said, "Well, measurement is cumbersome. It's it's time consuming. You've got to do a lot of interacting with the law enforcement, and not just the chief, but you know, the chase or the you know the number two or the inf and so instead of measuring and getting data, why don't we just assume?" that officer time, or if it's a sheriff, a deputy, that time is spent in equal parts of being dispatched, of uh, police community relations officer initiated. So, you know, that could be positive things of officer initiated of police community relations and building better, you know, rapport with the community. Or it could be just simple officer initiated crime prevention. So it's, you know, it's not just you know, liberal conservative, it's public safety and outreach as well, right? And then, and then another equal part of, of a catch-all of administration, which could be anything from uh, training to deposition preparation to report writing. Okay, so having worked in law enforcement for, you know, between 25 and 30 years, I'm thinking, you know, this isn't true within an agency, and it's not true across an agency, because people within the agency have different jobs. His detectives probably spend many more hours writing reports, right, than do patrol officers. Uh, some, uh, some patrol officers probably don't have to have even a single deposition training a year, right? So it's just very assumptive. So we said, how can we fix this model? So we have now, I think you guys, I don't know, maybe our fifth or possibly even sixth iteration, we've done this in other states. We have, uh, it's well, it's two years, so it feels like four. I said four earlier. <laughs> so uh, you can see from the first time we published uh, a moment ago, we did publish it, and Brenda was, was lead author, and the last author to give credit is one of our former master students now at doctoral student at uh, UF, and we've been going around presenting this. We've, it's been well-received. It, we, we gave the keynote in uh, uh, Championsgate for the Florida Sheriff's Association, and that caught attention, so that, then we got asked to give, uh, to present at the National Sheriff's Association. They liked it so much, they had us come back for the very, their very next conference to do their opening panel, and I won't bore you guys. We've done it at FBI and other conferences as well, but we kept going around referring to the model as the new and enhanced model doesn't really roll off the tongue, and we didn't want to get into squabble of naming it over one of us and leaving the others out. So uh, it, it's insanely bureaucratic. But finally, two years later, the U.S. Cops, the U.S. Cops Office has funded us twice. They funded us to redo it with Sheriff Staley with more time and with our 
better model instead of just assuming, actually measuring. And then for, for a police department in Tennessee, which very much has informed our study for you guys because it's very equivalent in size uh, as, as Edgewater-Gallatin Police Department in Tennessee. So the U.S. Cops Office has funded us twice and they have now, as of just a couple of weeks ago, I think like maybe two weeks, have finally have, you know, blessed our model. So we have, you know, we have a name, the U.S. COP staffing model. So we anticipate a flurry of more publications to advertise this now that we can actually call it something. Uh, so uh, let me, let me uh, finish on just one criticism of the model and why what we've done It's the major advancement. And then I'll turn it over to Brenda. So the, the model that we replaced was, was a six-step model. We, we, we added one additional step, which is, she'll, she'll walk you through the details of that. But instead of assuming how the officers spend their time, we actually go to, to the places in Tennessee, to all the different agencies here in Florida, and we spend uh, usually two, usually we like, most places work 12-hour shifts, so 12-12, so we like to catch them at shift change. So we go at the end of the shift and catch one shift as they end and then a new shift as they come. We have a semi-structured questionnaire, set questions. Uh, we do focus groups of like four to five officers. Uh, in, in, in smaller agencies such as your own, we, we don't sample. We, we try to speak to everyone. So if you've got you know 30, we might get 27 because somebody's off or vacation or whatever. But so we, we try to saturate where we can, and we won't. I won't bore you with the questionnaire, but we have you know uh, about I don't know 25 or so questions, and we really drill down and get to hear directly from the people that are you know boots on the ground, you know driving the cars. How much time do you really do? What types of calls command the most amount of your time? Okay, which calls require more than one officer? That's something that's easy. Every time we do this, we learn something that we're not measuring correctly because law enforcement is so complex. So obviously, you can tell I'm passionate about this and could talk about it a great deal. But I know that it's you know that time is short. So I'm going to let Brenda uh, talk you through the steps, and then at the end, I'll uh, try to wrap it up. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us. Uh, Mitch gave you an overview of why law enforcement staffing is important and how this model came to be, but I'm actually here with the analysis and what matters for your community. No pressure here, right? Oh, here. Harder. I got to push harder. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, so. Mitch mentioned that we sort of look at data in a mixed methods format. So we're looking at quantitative data and we're looking at qualitative data. You can also sort of simply um, boil it down to being a supply and demand model. So we started by looking at your data from 2022. So this is data, calls for service data from January 1st, 2022 through December 31st, 2022. And as Mitch mentioned, you have 12 hour shifts here that are divided into day and night. Uh, you'll notice that in total we had 21,522 calls for service in Edgewater. Uh, those were divided between day and night shifts, pretty closely even, 11,165 calls during the day, 10,357 calls during the night shift. So the next thing we look at is, okay, we know how many calls there were, but how long does it take to address these calls? So on average, during the day shift, it's 44 minutes and 66 seconds, excuse me, 44.66 minutes, night shift is 25.43. 
One important thing to point out here is not all calls have a single officer dispatched. There are some calls that require multiple officers to be dispatched. So you have to account for all of those officers' time. That goes into the calculation of how many officers do you actually need. Next up, we take those total calls for service and then actually divide that out by minutes and hours to determine the bare minimum number of officers you need per shift to be responding to calls for service. Now, this bare minimum number assumes that these officers are 100% of their shift going from call to call to call. It also assumes that they're working that 12-hour shift 365 days per year. As we all know, none of us have to work 365 days a year, thankfully. So this is the bare minimum again for... Correct, yes. So this again is the bare minimum, assuming that they are only responding to calls for service, and that's simply not the case. Next up, we're talking about obligation. And we're talking about obligation, that means what percent of their time are they actually spending responding to calls for service? As Mitch mentioned, the IACP model divides it into three areas. One is responding to calls for service. The second area is proactive policing, community policing, and the third is administrative duties. So this actually talks about the number of officers, again, bare minimum that you'd need, assuming that they're responding to calls 100% of the time, 66% of the time, 50% of the time, and 33% of the time. So during those focus groups, when we ask the officers, how much time are you actually spending? This is where we measure what's going on here in Edgewater. We found that your officers are responding to calls for service 60% of the time. That's higher than what we would like to see. Ideally, we would like them to be at that 33% of the, of the time because then it gives them adequate time to engage in those community service things that you like them to do, proactive policing, and also take care of their paperwork so they're prepared to move the case to court as needed. Okay? Any questions about that? Yes. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, the officers are not working 12 hours per day, 365 days per year. So you actually have to go ahead and calculate something that's called a shift relief factor. That is, okay, we acknowledge that people have scheduled days off. People are sick. They may call in sick. They may be attending a training. They may be injured and can only be on desk duty. They may be on vacation. So how do we account for that in staffing? Well, there's a way that we can do it, and it's this calculation of a shift relief factor. So by doing this, we actually compare the number of officers the number of hours an officer works versus the total hours possible in the year. And so to do that, we actually have to go in and look at the HR data and see what is the average number of hours the officers are working, what is the average hour of numbers, that weeks and hours that they're off per year. So this allows us to calculate the shift relief factor, which in Edgewater happens to be 2.20. So what that means is for every one officer you need to have on the schedule, you need to have 2.2 officers on staff to cover all of these various reasons that an officer wouldn't be working. So this is where we get to your actual need. This includes the shift relief factor. So if at 100% obligated where the officers were only responding to calls for service, you need 5.9 officers during the day, 3.1 during the night. I'll not read to the others. I will just get you to the one that's the most important. That is the 33% obligated. That is the gold standard. 
that's the ideal that you want to see. And so for that to happen, you're looking at 17.69 officers during the day, 9.31 officers during the night for a total of 28 officers total. So Mitch mentioned that we added a seventh step to this um, process. And what this does is for large agencies that have zones, districts, sectors, it allows us to analyze each of those individually to really drill down to see, are the crimes the same in each of these districts, zones, and sectors? Is the time the same? Is the types of crime the same? How do we most efficiently allocate the officers that we have? Well, because of the size of Edgewater, you're growing, you're heading in this direction, but there weren't major differences between the two zones that you have. But as you grow, you may want to reanalyze the data to see if there are major differences between those zones, again, to more efficiently allocate your officers. And this is going to bring us to our recommendation. Thank you. So uh, in trying to close here, uh, essentially what we have here is a, a situation of supply, number of officers available at any given moment to respond to a call for services, and then in an ideal or a better than just that bare minimum world, do other police services that we would like to be done as well, right? So supply and then demand, and then demand at a minimum the absolute essence, irrefutable demand that you, you can't talk away, legislate, you know, lobby, are the calls for services, right? You know, the emergency calls. I mean, whether it's an actual emergency, but the calls for services, okay? The dispatch, okay? And then, so Brenda said, well, the gold standard, ideally 33% dispatch. You say, well, first of all, dispatches get inflated. There's lots of types of calls for which there must be another Right. I mean, we know just from the interviews, there's a lot of times that your officers have to go and back up the county and vice versa. Right. Because that's just the nature of that offense or that or that incident. OK, so. Uh, so it's partly that, but it's also that, you know, well, we also again, we, we, we the more you're dispatched, the sooner you're going to be burned out. You've got to have some recovery time between events, especially when they're traumatic events of which police often have to deal with. Okay, so there's that element. Then you want to have some time for, and I, I mean, I don't care if, I mean, I honestly don't know if you guys are Republicans or Democrats, so it doesn't matter if you're coming out of, I want to help people and pro-social type things, or if you're saying, I want more public safety and I'm tired of too much crime here, either way, but the, the third gold standard allows, allows for you as the town council in conjunction with your chief to set those objectives, right? I mean, that one-third's a sliding scale. You can move it up or down and then have your people more or less dispatched. But if you want your officers to have time to do things to build positive relationships with the community, they, they can't be dispatched and do that at the same time, right? Okay, at the same time, if you want some of their time to be spent, you know, like sometimes I, I grew up outside of Nashville in the bedroom community, and we would see a cop roll through maybe like once a week, and it was weird. And I, I remember like the adults once in a while saying, we haven't seen an officer through here, you know, in three months, because like the neighbors want to see a police officer once in a while, right? Well, that's the most basic, you know, general deterrent type of crime prevention, but if you want some of that, they can't be doing that, and again, also simultaneously be dispatched, right? So, uh, what we have come up with are 
your hiring needs for immediate, again, set at this one-third ideal threshold, okay? Uh, and then we said near future, and the math on that comes out at uh, five and then ten years, correct? I think at first we did three and five, and we're like, that's ridiculous to do three and five because they're two, not enough difference. So uh, to be able to maintain the type of response time you have now with the volumes and the supply and demand as adjusted by all these shift relief factors and other things, you would need not you would need nine additional hires full time right now. Okay. For the near future and it's I'm almost hesitant to even throw out the ten year number because we know things are going to change so much between now and then. But but as it assuming they the population didn't change more than what what's this expected growth rate that we've factored now at Five years, you would need to go from nine to just only two additional to 11. And then, uh, oddly, the math only shows going to 12 from the five to 10-year jump. But the math doesn't really, I think, probably calculate social change that, you know, is apt to happen in that time frame. So, you know, I would probably just look at the, the, the first two numbers as, you know, things more realistic for you at this juncture. So... Uh, with that, we'll uh, be happy to answer any questions. We have a we have the full report, which uh, we sent a revised version. We continued to find a couple of minor errors until even this morning, so we sent the chief a, a revised uh, version of that this afternoon. And I have one hard copy. I'm happy to leave if anybody wants to see it. But I'm sure the chief can either disseminate to you guys, or uh, I've got business cards and happy to just you know, send you a, a copy directly as well. But uh, if there are any questions, I know that uh, the, the uh, seven-step formula is a bunch of arithmetic kind of gobbledygook with the numbers back and forth, and we're happy to break that down if anybody wants, wants, wants us to show the work, uh, that, that sort of approach. But if you have any more uh, other or general questions about the study, then you know, we'll be happy to address them. Lonnie, didn't you send a copy of this in the um I started reading over it this afternoon. I, I did, but I sent it. If it was revived this afternoon, okay. that's not what, one. Okay. what I sent you. Got okay. halfway through it. I think <laughs> I sent it Friday. Yeah. Thank you. Are there any further questions? Mentor, I would like to know, do we have a plan of action of taking steps towards fixing this? <clears throat> it's budgetary. It's over the summer. How many officers did we add last year? What was the recommendation? Two. I believe Joe asked last year, I believe he asked, didn't you ask for two. eight and then a... Yeah, correct. We, we added two last year. Um, this study also doesn't, it doesn't, cover span and control. So that number of nine are just call takers, which means a patrol officer or a traffic officer. So when you add nine and ultimately 11, you have to add supervision as well. So fortunately, right now we're the product of our, our own efficacy. We do a really good job what we have, um, but there's a point where that, that starts to diminish. But just keep in mind with that number, you're going to need more more command staff and, and sergeants as well in the future. Um, you know, I can tell you, 
and take this for what it is, but in 1996, we had 34 sworn officers. It's 2024, and we have 34 sworn officers. So over that span of 28 years, I think the demand for law enforcement services in Edgewater probably has increased, but the size of our force has not. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, and we're tasked with doing a lot more than we had to do in 1996. There's a lot of other activities that they will want law enforcement involved in. Um, bigger population as well. Correct. Population uh, and, and geographically, jurisdiction-wise. Um, I can tell you just to, and I'm not going to get, I'm not in finance, so these are just rudimentary, rudimentary numbers, so I don't want to. That's going to be another topic, yes. I'm going to tell you that because it does cost money, obviously, for nine police officers. Um, and this is just my, uh, my analysis going through the budget. You know, a fully loaded benefit um, police officer is about 87000 per year to start. The equipment to outfit that officer is about 12000 And then if you add the vehicle, it's about $66,000. So per officer, it's it's one hundred and sixty-five thousand uh, dollars per year. Per officer, is that what you said? Yeah. That's per officer, per equipment, and with a vehicle. Now there's ways to first, to, first year. Correct. First year start. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Any further questions? Is there also a breakdown of what? down the line of what officers you would need because a lot of the complaints that we get are also speeding and I know we have the we have the three motors and I think they're great but they cannot there's a, they cannot all be on at the yeah. same time the there's report, three now. Yeah, the report does speak to that uh, briefly and uh, because you have day uh, 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 swell due to day uh, uh, traffic and, and people coming to work passing through uh, people utilizing the water access on the weekends, things like those hours, that uh, if you did want to think in, in specialization, then there would certainly be a logic for uh, traffic position or more or more traffic control officers. And I don't know, I, you know, we didn't drill down into, you know, how your citation uh, revenue and all that works, because usually there's some, you know, partial feedback route to the city, which, you know, that could in turn offset some of the cost of these additional personnel. And, and when I said that we learned something every time, I, I was amiss, I, and Chief, when we discussed this uh, just a couple of days ago, but he, he's quite correct. Uh, and, and again, I don't know, uh, we didn't ask that question, so I don't know if his dispatchers and support staff for these nine new you know, people that would be uh, responding to calls would be sworn or not, okay. but there but they're obviously are additional, you know, uh, personnel uh, needs to accompany that. Thank you. I guess if we were, another question, if we were to hire the nine new officers, if we were able to have that in the budget, we'd also need um, supervisors. And some of the officers who are now staff just go up to supervise, go up the, um, up the ladder as, so we would not have to hire new supervisors. We'd just be uh, making some of the officers um, a higher rank. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, our, our initial plan um, I can tell you how the, the officers will be allocating. This is the this is actually eleven, but uh, it's six patrol officers to to begin with, um, and then a traffic supervisor, an additional traffic officer, an additional canine unit, an additional detective, uh, and then two lieutenants as well. Thank you. Th this could be over. Um, you know what what we really need is is some kind of commitment, and then so I can implement a plan. So. 
commit that yes, we can afford this over whether it's one year, two year, three years. I like one year better, but I'm, I'm realistic. So, but if if we have that commitment, then we can actually put together a plan and say exactly what they're going to be allocated in what time frame. Thank you. Okay. Seeing no further questions, we are adjourned. <coughs>